Well, why don't we, if you can, why don't you stand and I'll read Isaiah 27 to you. We're only going to do Isaiah 27, but I am going to jump to Romans chapter 9, or Romans chapter 11, because Paul quotes uh, part of the text in here in the very defense of the prophecy. And, uh, and there's some significance to that because of, um, there's always a difference in perspective in the world. Uh, that's why it's good for us to take on a biblical perspective. Amen. So again, we have this phrase, in that day, the Lord with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, that twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. In that day, sing to her, a vineyard of red wine. I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment. Lest any hurt it, I keep it night and day. Fury is not in me. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let him take hold of my strength, that he may make peace with me, and he shall make peace with me. Those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud, and fill the face of the world with fruit. He has struck Israel, I'm sorry, has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. Therefore, by this, the iniquity of Jacob will be covered. And this is all the fruit of taking away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. Yet... The fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken, and left like a wilderness. There the calf will feed, and there it will lie down and consume its branches. When its boughs are withered, they will be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor." It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So it shall be in that day the great trumpet will be blown. They will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria, and they who are outcasts in the land of Egypt, and shall worship the Lord in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Well, Father, um, Lord, thank you for your word. Lord, and as we look at this particular prophecy tonight and Paul's discussion about it in Romans 11, it has everything to do with your promises. It has everything to do with your faithfulness. And uh, it has nothing to do with our faithfulness, but purely upon the word that you give. So I pray that you would encourage us accordingly. And Lord, again, we're thankful that Al and Isaac are with us. And um, yeah, so Lord, we, we're just so grateful. Uh, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go and be seated. Isaiah 27. Kind of uh, some fun stuff in here. Uh, and one verse that um, is very interesting. We'll look at it when we get there. So verse one says, In that day the Lord, uh, if your Bible, I don't, not all translations do this, but the New King James has all caps for Lord, L-O-R-D, 
And uh, when it does that, it, it, it means that it's uh, the Hebrew word Yahweh, Yahweh. In that day, the Lord, with his severe sword, great and strong, will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisted serpent, and he will slay the reptile that is in the sea. So he's continuing on in this whole series of prophecies, and we know that it's connected to the former prophecies because it says in that day. He doesn't say in a day, but he's speaking of a a specific time in the future, okay? Uh, Isaiah is still prophesying about the affairs of Israel, as you noticed in the reading, and uh, the last days and the final judgment. Uh, these two things are going to occur within the same time frame. The, the final judgment, the redemption of Israel, all of that. Um, here it mentions this, uh, this sword uh, in the first part of the text, the severe sword, great and strong. Uh, Revelation 19 says that when Christ returns to judge, that a great sword will come out of his mouth to strike the nations. You've read it, right? Yeah. The particular sword that's mentioned there in the Greek is the, the Thracian uh, romphia, uh, which is, it's not the typical uh, sword used by the average um, Roman soldier or a Thracian soldier. Uh, it's the larger sword that was used for, for crushing armor, for breaking shields, so that the, the, the approaching uh, army could break through the ranks of the opposing army. Because when they would set their shields and set their weight against it, the little uh, uh, Macaria, which is a, a, the short sword, it wasn't able to penetrate or you could try to poke between them. But the Romphia could actually break the shields and, uh, and crush armor. And uh, that's the sword that he's wielding. It's, they were generally uh, six feet long, uh, all the ones that we have in antiquity. And uh, of course, it required that you use two hands to wield it. So when it, the text says severe, great, strong, I think that describes the Romphia uh, very well. In that day of judgment, when the Lord comes to rescue Israel, and I, I don't want to get into Revelation too much, but there is this issue between Satan and the nation of Israel, and Christ actually comes to Israel's uh, rescue, and it says here that he will that the Lord will attack Leviathan and punish him. Now, there's some pretty uh, fancy interpretations as to the identity of Leviathan, okay? Uh, Some say that Leviathan is a reference to the Nile River and the Euphrates River uh, because of how a snake slithers. Uh, Some have said that because because of Leviathan's connection to chaos in the, uh, the Ugaritic mythology, Leviathan represents chaos, but God, through his judgment, will bring chaos in order. Now, I guess I don't really mind any of those interpretations, but when the average reader reads that, that's not what comes to mind, okay? Uh, so I say that we could just say what the, uh, the average uh, person just kind of immediately, the sense they get from the passage using this figurative kind of symbolic language. Uh, what do you think Leviathan is? And I tested this out throughout the week. Hmm? A dragon? Satan? Satan? Yeah. I, I think so. I think it's, it's pretty clear. And then when we take all of the, uh, put all of the prophetic calendar together, uh, we see this discussion in Revelation. We see Jesus talking about the serpent of old and, and all of that. Um, so 
Yeah, and then of course, judging Satan will also involve uh, those people, those nations that have uh, essentially been in cahoots with him uh, in, in their rebellion, in their wickedness. Uh, but in the end, Satan, uh, the God of this world, he will fall. Uh, the details of Satan being punished are uh, mentioned in Revelation 20. Of course, he's, he's eventually defeated and he's cast into the lake of fire forever, forever. Verse two, in that day, again, sing to her a vineyard of red wine. So interesting, God is saying in the future, in that day, he's gonna call for a song. Sing this particular song. And the song is about God's vineyard which produces red wine. Now, this is interesting because in chapter five, we have God uh, in, in that chapter speaking about his vineyard and saying how disappointed he was in the vineyard. He had expected domestic grapes and he got wild grapes. So the text says that he tore everything down. And uh, when God interprets the parable, which it, it kind of is there, he says that his vineyard is Israel and Judah. Israel is my vineyard, and for their wickedness, I have to judge them. Well, the prophecy in Isaiah 5 was in reference to uh, the near future, the near future of what he intended to do to Israel. But the prophecy here in chapter 27, remember, is in a reference to that day. That's in the far distant future, and God has changed his, his, his tune about the vineyard. Okay, before his vineyard produced no wine, but now, at that time, the vineyard will produce red wine. Uh, why would he do that? He says, I, the Lord, keep it. I water it every moment. Lest any hurt it, I keep it night and day. The, the language here is the polar opposite of what God says about his vineyard in Isaiah 5. There he says, he took away its hedges. He burned it. He broke down its walls. He let it be trampled down. He laid it waste. He would not prune it. He would not dig around it. Uh, he let briars and thrones, uh, uh, thorns grow in its place, and he wouldn't allow the rain to fall upon it. But now, or at that time, okay, as we see in chapter 27, the Lord is keeping it. He's watering it, and it says every moment protecting it night and day. So Isaiah 5 was regarding the imminent future. Chapter 27 is the last days, the future restoration, protection, we may say cultivation of Israel at that time. Very different, isn't it? Very different. Paul says that when Israel is reunited to God, it will be like them coming back from the dead. Romans chapter 11, verse 15. He says, fury is not in me. It's part of the song. Who would set briars and thorns against me in battle? I would go through them. I would burn them together. Or let them, or sorry, let him take hold of my strength that he may make peace with me and he shall make peace with me. So the, the anger toward Israel in Isaiah 5 has now turned into peace with God. Israel's rebellion someday is gonna come to an end. They're going to surrender to God. They're going to enjoy a relationship with him. Okay, so that's the conclusion of the song. Now back to the regular prophecy. He says, those who come, he shall cause to take root in Jacob. Israel shall blossom and bud and fill the face of the world with fruit. I like that part. 
So first, those who come, uh, these are believing Israelites. They're going to return to the land of Israel and enjoy uh, what we call the land promises of God, first to Abraham. Concerning the latter half of the prophecy, this issue of budding and fruit, okay, we might call this currently that there is a, maybe a partial fulfillment as Israel has begun to blossom and bud and literally fill the earth with fruit. Uh, some would say that what I'm about to share is coincidental, but I say that's rubbish. Here's why. How many of you guys have been to Israel? Tropical? Not exactly. It's considered an arid nation. It's roughly the size of Rhode Island, and it's the eighth largest tropical fruit exporter on the planet. Eighth. That's impressive. In 2020, Israel exported 354 million worth just in tropical fruit alone. That doesn't say anything about their apples. That's, that's huge. Fruit and vegetable exports in 2017 came to 941 million, and they increase in their exports by 10% almost every single year. Uh, Israel's uh, is the world's third largest flower exporter to the European Union, third largest. They even export flowers to Holland. It's pretty amazing, yeah. So how does a war-torn, arid nation, which is now only 74 years old and roughly the size of Rhode Island, whose every time the UN gets together, they're oppressed, become one of the leading fruit and flower exporters on the planet? How do they do that without the providence of God? I think maybe that we should take a second look at how we interpret prophecy. Maybe just a little bit more literally. Uh, a greater miracle still is the fact that Israel, against all odds, is a nation again after being removed for nearly 2,000 years from her land, uh, suffering persecution and genocide for much of that time. Yeah, so fruit and flowers. You guys, Israel has budded, and it's just on its way to filling the earth with fruit just as Isaiah prophesied. As I said, this is partial. Uh, who knows what Israel's potential will be in the future. Uh, it's increasing, by the way, in, in many, many ways. God says, has he struck Israel as he struck those who struck him? Or has he been slain according to the slaughter of those who were slain by him? So, of course, God uh, hasn't struck Israel or slain her like he struck other nations. I mean, there's so many examples of this. Did he strike Israel the same as he struck Sodom and Gomorrah? No. How about Babylon? Babylon is no more, like Sodom and Gomorrah. Nineveh is no more. Egypt, that is, the Egypt of the Egyptians is no more. The Egyptians today are Arabs. Uh, as the Muslims were taking over that part of the world, They've, uh, they're a different people group now. Multiple empires are no more, like Assyria, the, the Babylon Empire the Egyptian Empire, Persian, Grecian, and Roman. Okay, God judged Israel for her rebellion, but not the way that he judged other cities and, and nations. Uh, unlike her ancient foes, like the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, Edomites, Midianites, have you guys ever met one of those? <laughs> they don't exist, okay? And others that are extinct, Israel thrives today. Israel thrives today, not just in fruit and flower exports. She's the world leader in technology, medicine, agriculture. Israel's a leading military power. Think about that. The size of Rhode Island. It's a military power and a nuclear power, and all of this happened since 1948. Every bit of it, yeah. Um, 
It's not Israel's doing. I don't think Israel is going to be able to take any credit for it. I think it's purely the, the providence of God, but it is quite amazing. Uh, there is no other story in the world, in world history, like Israel's. Not even close. So this verse here, it says, In measure, by sending it away, you contended with it. He removes it by his rough wind in the day of the east wind. Uh, I don't care what translation you have of this particular verse. Uh, it is nearly incomprehensible without the surrounding verses. So let me move on, and uh, we'll interpret it in light of verse 7 which came before, and then verse nine. Verse nine says, therefore, by this, that is what was said in verse eight, the iniquity of Jacob will be covered, and this is all the fruit of taking away his sin. When he makes all the stones of the altar like chalk stones that are beaten to dust, wooden images and incense altars shall not stand. Okay, so we've already said God has judged the other nations, uh, and he's judged Israel, but not like them. God, in judging them, he drove the Israelites out of the land of promise. And the idea is that he did it, and this, you know, is this figurative language, using a rough wind, as it were, not to destroy her. He ran them out to discipline her and to bring her to a place of repentance so that then her sins could be atoned for. Okay, we know from the scriptures that without repentance, there, there can't be forgiveness, okay? There's no hope of redemption. Without repentance, all is lost. And so God's chastisement of his people is always motivated by this heart to recover what is lost, okay? what has uh, gone astray. Uh, his vengeance, like with the other nations, destroys. We have all kinds of examples of that. But his mercy always chastises to restore. We know that from the Proverbs, we know it from the book of Hebrews, that he chastises those that he loves. Well, God clearly loves Israel, or uh, they would have been dust uh, with the rest of those nations, right? Yeah. So Israel, though, currently under chastisement, uh, they are the object of God's future mercy. In fact, I think they've been enjoying his mercy for quite some time now, at least since 1948. And, um, yeah. One of the, the greatest sins of, idol of, of Israel was idolatry. And uh, it, it's been said that, that God cured Israel of idolatry uh, by way of the, the Babylonian captivity. But today, Israel is steeped in Jewish mysticism. Uh, it's Kabbalah. Uh, if you've been to Mart, Mount Carmel, there's a huge temple on Mount Carmel, and it's not a Jewish temple. It's a Baha'i temple. That's a problem in the land of Israel, okay? And uh, there's shamans there. Uh, earth religions abound in Israel, just as they did uh, with the Canaanite culture. And so... Israel in post-Babylon exile, it was pretty well cured of idolatry, but not completely. But today, Israel is steeped in secularism and many different forms of idolatry. Um, it's, it's ugly, yeah. But God, he will cure Israel of her idolatry. As the text says, the altars will come to nothing, and uh, he'll, he'll atone for her sins uh, when Israel comes to Christ. Verse 20, uh, or I'm sorry, verse 10, he says, yet the fortified city will be desolate, the habitation forsaken, and left like a wilderness. Therefore, the there the calf will feed, and there it will lie down and consume its branches. Now, there's some uh, commentators debate over the identity of this particular city. Um, some have said that it's 
Jerusalem, that it's Jerusalem. But as we've been going through chapter 27, the primary focus has been on the northern kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel. So it seems more likely that this city refers to its capital, which was Samaria, which was the hub of idolatry. Okay? The verse before this has mentioned uh, the, the idolatrous altars, the idols themselves. This was the, the, the epicenter of all of that. And uh, so I think it's Samaria. Uh, you know, if you look at Jerusalem today, does it look like a heap of ruins? It doesn't. But if you look at the uh, ancient city of Samaria, archaeologists hang out there because it's just a heap of rubble. It's a tell. And so I think this is, this is um, speaking of Samaria. He says, when its boughs are withered, they will be broken off. The women come and set them on fire, for it is a people of no understanding. Therefore, he who made them will not have mercy on them, and he who formed them will show them no favor. So this idolatrous hub uh, is going to just be fully condemned by God, and it's just going to remain that way forever. Okay? But not all hope is lost for the people. Verse 12, and it shall come to pass when in that day, okay, that the Lord will thresh from the channel of the river to the brook of Egypt, and you will be gathered one by one, O you children of Israel. So we're back to in that day, referring to the events of the end, once again, the, the regathering of the Jewish people. Let's look at verse 13 for the full picture. It says, so it shall be in that day, he says the great trumpet will be blown. I think trumpets are mentioned in the New Testament sometimes in this similar context, they will come who are about to perish in the land of Assyria and they who are outcast in the land of Egypt and shall worship the Lord in the holy mount at Jerusalem. So on that day, whatever that particular day is, the great trumpet will sound and the children of Israel, not simply as a nation, the text says, but one by one, one by one, and they will come from these particular landmarks that are mentioned in the text. Uh, these landmarks happen to be the original boundaries of land promised to Abraham from the Nile all the way to the Euphrates. It's a lot of land. And these believing Jews, will, they will return to Jerusalem. They'll come to Jerusalem, to God's holy mountain, that is the temple, and they will come and worship Jehovah. Not idols, not Kabbalah, not the garbage that we see in Israel today, but they will worship Yahweh. Remember, too, that it's not just the Jews who will come to the mountain of worship. Uh, the believing Gentiles, that our uh, former prophecies that we've talked about, they, too, will come to Jerusalem, and they'll be at the mountain to, to learn the word of the Lord, especially chapter 2 brings that out real clear. So Jews and Gentiles alike, in the last days, worshiping together, as God originally intended, by the way. So... I want to end this with a couple questions and then we'll get into Romans. Why is this issue about a future redeemed and regathered Israel so important? Why is this so important? Well, first, it's a central topic of Bible prophecy, as you've noticed. Okay? Uh, and second, it assures us of God's integrity. So the first one, it's, 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 a, it's, central, to, it's central, central to Bible prophecy. And so I think that it would be, I don't know how to say it, disrespectful to minimize what the scriptures give so much attention to. God took the time 
to uh, put it there, to tell us about it, that he's going to do these things. Uh, We're only in the 27th chapter of Isaiah, and the issue has come up time and time again uh, as we've gone through all of this. Okay, now, I have to be clear. When we talk about the redemption of Israel, we do not mean that every single Jew in the last days will be saved. I know that there are some hyper-dispensationalists that believe that. Uh, I don't believe it. I don't get it from the text. Only believing Jews will be saved. That has always been the case with all people groups. Amen? Only believing Jews will be saved. Just because a Jew is circumcised, Paul says, doesn't mean he's going to be saved. Okay? And we would say just because somebody's baptized doesn't mean that they're going to be saved. Okay? Especially if, they, if just because someone said the sinner's prayer, uh, we can't automatically say that they're saved. Right? People must believe. They must believe. But in the scriptures, as we've even seen this far in Isaiah, and as we see in many other places, it does suggest that there's going to be this massive turning to Christ by ethnic Jews, okay? But not every single one will be saved, okay? So we give this issue the attention we do because it's just this huge part of biblical prophecy. We must pay attention to it. The second thing, the redemption, the regathering of Israel assures us of God's integrity. It does. You see, God made unilateral and unconditional promises to Israel, beginning with Abraham. And it continued on uh, all the way through David. We find it uh, in the Psalms. We find it in 2 Samuel. And then we find it in all of the prophets' promises concerning the land, the throne of David, and the redemption of Israel. Okay? So here it is. If God does not or cannot keep those promises to Israel... There is no guarantee that he will or can keep his promises to us. That's just the facts. If God can't keep his promises to them, there's no way to be confident that he can keep his promises to us. But because he has and he is, we can be sure that all of the promises of God in Christ Jesus are what? Are yes and they are amen. Okay, yes and amen. Both to us and to Israel. Okay, God as soon as we get to, especially Abraham, but it's before that, it's with Noah, we discover that, that Yahweh is a God of covenant, a God of covenant. And, uh, and, and his covenants, especially when they're unilateral and unconditional, uh, they're really just pro- divine promises because God is guaranteeing what he's gonna do. He's guaranteeing what he's gonna do. And we've seen him throughout history fulfilling all of his covenants, all of his promises, Okay. So he's a covenant-keeping God. His word never falls to the ground. What did you guys do to my notes? Are you watching this, Evan? Okay. Huh? How'd we do? Is that the same place we were? I'm surprised it remembered all that. Yeah, that's good. So the issue of God's faithfulness to Israel is an issue of his faithfulness to us. It is. We can't get away from it. Now, I think the real mystery is, is this. Why does God, who has perfect foreknowledge of all future events make promises to unreliable sinful humanity. And I mean to ethnic Jews and to us. I mean, people would readily say, well, I can't believe he made promises to Israel. But why would he make them to to us? Because so far, the church really has not done a better job than Israel at being faithful. It's It's just true. Yeah. But God promises stand. And if our sin does not alter the course or integrity of God's promises... There's nothing that Israel can do to change the course of his promises. Yeah. 
So concerning Israel, uh, and listen carefully, God's elect, the Old Testament, God says, Israel, my elect. Israel, my elect. Paul said, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Concerning Israel, God's elect, Paul says, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. So let me show you the context of the statement. Paul says, for I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, if you look there, in the text, there's three parties. There's the brethren, right? Paul says brethren. That's Paul's audience, which refers to the believers in Christ in Rome. And then there's Israel, that's ethnic Jews who are blind and not believers in Christ. And then there's Gentiles who are ethnically non-Jew who are not currently believers in Christ. All three of those parties are in the text, are they not? Okay. And Paul says that this spiritual blindness is currently over ethnic Israel. And he says it will remain there until. It'll remain there until. The word until designates an expiration date for the blindness of Israel. Okay? That blindness, he says, will be removed when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That is, as soon as the gospel has secured the full number of Gentiles by faith, blindness will be removed from Israel. Okay? And what is the result of the removal of Israel's blindness? And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. Or we could say, as it has been promised. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Of course, Jacob and Israel are identical uh, as far as people go. And then there's the nation of Israel, the children of Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Covenant and promise. Why will all Israel be saved? Simple, because of God's covenant with them to take away their sins. When was that covenant promise made? Well, we have Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. We have Isaiah 59, verse 20. But also, as we just read a little bit ago, uh, Paul is borrowing uh, from the Septuagint, of course, Isaiah 29, or 27, verse 9. So he's quoting the prophecy that we've just studied to uh, perpetuate the promise of God to save Israel. So Paul says that these promises, in light of the entire context of, of Romans 9 through 11, though Israel rejected Christ in the first century, his promise still stands. God will take away their sins. He will turn them to Christ. He says, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. They, of course, is a reference to ethnic Israel, the ones that God made the covenant with to take away their sins. And they are beloved, he says, for the sake of the fathers. That's the Old Testament fathers. Why? For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. As the King James says, they're, they're without repentance without repentance. Because God's gifts and callings are irrevocable. The time is coming when God, through Israel's faith in Christ, will turn ungodliness away from Jacob and take away their sins. He will redeem them, okay? Now there's no textual reason, there's no exegetical justification for concluding any other way 
than to say that in the future, when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, God will redeem ethnic Israel. There's nothing else to, to extrapolate from that text. Some say that because the Jews rejo- rejected Christ and had him crucified, that the Jews forfeit the promises of God. When was the book of Romans written? Before the cross or after? Well after. Yeah, the book of Romans was written between 57 and 58 AD. Christ was crucified in about 32, 33 AD. So what is Paul saying? He's saying though they rejected and crucified Christ, it does not alter the promise of God. It does not alter the promise of God. Yeah. Paul said, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am a what? An Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Foreknew, that's an important uh, word there in the context of redemption. Those whom God foreknew, he also predestined. That's Romans 8.29, yeah. So God's promise to Israel stands just as his promise to us, not just a promise, but all of the promises of God in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. They all stand, okay? So we say that people need a history of um, character. They need a track record of keeping their word. Uh, We call it proven character. Uh, Nobody has proven character like God. So when you consider the promises of God uh, and you feel like the promises aren't unraveling the way that you think they should, you need to return back to the Old Testament especially and look at the history of God's fulfilled promises that he keeps covenant. He always fulfills his word, okay? Now, if it's a conditional promise, then you have to check to see if you've met the condition. If it's unconditional, if it's unilateral, there's, there's nothing you can do to stop the promise, Okay, I've often used the example of the rainbow. Aren't you glad it's not a conditional promise? Because if it was, we would flood every afternoon, okay? Because we wouldn't meet the condition. So all of the promises of God stand. And because God keeps his promises to Israel, he will keep all of his promises to us. He can't do otherwise, amen? Go ahead and stand up, we'll pray. All right, Father, we love you. And Lord, it's, it's, it is, it all boils down to an issue of trust, We've trusted that Christ died in our place and for our sins. And that because of that, you have forgiven us. That's a promise. That because of him, Lord, his righteousness has been imputed to us. Because of that, you have declared us righteous. You consider us righteous in your sight. And you will reward us accordingly. That's a promise. You also said that those you foreknew, you also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, you've promised to sanctify us and transform us and to make us like your son. It's a promise. You've promised that you'll always be with us and you'll never forsake us, that you have loved us with an everlasting love. Jesus, you promised that we are in your hands and we're in your Father's hands and that nobody can take us out. Lord, thank you for your promises. And I pray that, Lord, you teach us by faith to just to bank on them, to trust, and to live accordingly. Lord, grant us grace to do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Lord bless you guys.